Hello and welcome to the Chair's Corner from the Department of Medicine at the University of North Carolina. This is our series for patients focused on organ transplant, and today we'll talk about kidney transplant. We welcome Dr. Alex Toledo, who is an Associate Professor of Surgery in our Department of Surgery at UNC, and Dr. Karen True, who is an Assistant Professor of Medicine in our wonderful Division of Nephrology and Hypertension. Welcome, Drs. Toledo and True. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Let's begin this conversation by helping our listeners figure out what the two of you do. Dr. Toledo, you are a surgeon. Dr. True, you are a transplant nephrologist or a transplant kidney doctor. What's the role that each one of you plays? So, Karen, let me start with you. So, I help patients that have reached advanced chronic kidney disease. So, these are patients who are very close to needing dialysis. Their kidney disease is very advanced. So, that's the time we start talking about the option of kidney transplant to treat their kidney disease. And so what we do is we bring them into our clinic, they get an educational class, they see some other providers, and they see me. And my job is to determine how good of a candidate they are for a kidney transplant. And what I do is I take their medical history, we go through their medications, we talk about what kind of medical problems they have that are going on, what kind of problems they've had in the past, and then we determine what kind of testing they'll need and other things they'll need to get on the kidney transplant waiting list. Or if they have a living-related donor, whether or not they're able to get a transplant that way. Right. So, mm-hmm. Alex, then, mm-hmm. what's the role of the surgeon in this early mm-hmm. workup time? So, for the surgeons, we come into the picture just a little bit later. We, um, After our uh, nephrology colleagues have evaluated the patients and started to get a grasp on their medical conditions and and, uh, other illnesses, we will evaluate the patient and look at it from a surgical perspective. We'll look at whether or not they're susceptible to infections, how they would perform with the surgery, whether they'd be able to tolerate the stress of the surgery. And also, we have many other colleagues who are sort of coming into the picture at that time to get a comprehensive 360-degree view of the patient and make sure there's no uh, missing gaps because when we, you know, sort of go live with the transplant, we want everything to be in order. So this is really a team of somebody who is a nephrologist, somebody who's a surgeon, evaluating mm-hmm. the person, mm-hmm. the potential, what's known as the recipient of the donor, right, and making sure that they're okay. Right, absolutely. The Of all the specialties in medicine, I, I think transplant is one that you can look at as certainly a field where where teamwork is of the utmost importance. We have uh, pharmacists, nutritionists, psychologists, psychiatrists, immunologists, nephrologists, hepatologists, surgeons, you know, the list goes on and on. So I often will will tell the medical students that, that that are rotating through transplant, and sometimes they see it as sort of a niche field, but I always remind them that no matter what they do, they're probably some way, somehow going to see these patients again. So uh, we work in such a big group that somewhere, sometime, we'll, our paths will cross again. So as a patient mm-hmm. coming in, one shouldn't be surprised to see a, a bevy of different kinds of people. Absolutely. We have a lot of people on our team, and 
And we don't look at things just from the medical aspect. We look at it from the psychosocial aspect as well. So how is this transplant going to impact them in their work life if they're working? Do they have people that can support them and bring them to appointments? Some of the transplant medicines are very expensive. How are they going to navigate that? So all of that gets addressed before we actually go through with the actual surgery. Yeah, I would agree. the The process, especially from the patient's perspective, when you when you think that it's uh, someone who's probably already sick, going through all these evaluations, can be laborious. But I always try to encourage them to work hard to get through the process because the benefit of transplant is immense, and we want to make sure they get through. It's just that the evaluation takes a little while because we want to make sure one that they're a good candidate, and two that we've prepared them as best we can for the surgery. So this team though continues through the transplant process and then in the in the period post, of yeah. time for as long as the transplant works. So even when the transplant goes in, there is this teamwork. And then as uh, the patient ends up with a wonderful transplant long term, uh, Dr. True, you end up seeing people for how many years? I think my longest patient who had a kidney that lasted the longest was 34 years. That's certainly out of the normal. An average for a living donor kidney transplant is about 15 years, which is half of them are working at 15 years, half of them aren't. So some of them last longer than that. And for a deceased donor, it's about 12 years. But those numbers are going up all the time. And so, With respect to, though, meeting this team to start with as a patient, really it's once you go through the process, you now get cared for by the same team for a long, long time if oh, yes. everything works well. Absolutely, yeah. So it's good to get to know all of the players. Mm-hmm. A couple of things that already came up in what you started with, uh, Karen. Uh, you talked about the idea of patients who were just on dialysis. Can somebody get a transplant and start this workup who's not on dialysis but who has advanced kidney disease? Absolutely, and that's Always our goal, actually, is to try to get people to transplant before they need dialysis. Of course, we're grateful that we have dialysis for for patients that need it, but if we can get them to transplant before they even need dialysis, that's, that's a great situation. So anyone who's approaching more advanced chronic kidney disease can be referred to a transplant center to be evaluated and go through the process we were already discussing And basically, a patient is eligible to be placed on the waiting list when their kidney function is at 20%. Now, not everyone, most people don't need dialysis at that kidney function. They can go down to 15, 10, 5% before they need dialysis, but patients can be placed on the waiting list and start getting time accrued on the waiting list um, which is part of the way that we distribute kidneys to patients who from deceased donors. So how do you actually figure out whether somebody's eligible to be on the list? You said the number 20%. How do you figure that out? So that's determined by blood works that's, that's drawn at the kidney doctor's office or at your primary care doctor's office. So we look at, at the laboratory work, and that will tell us at what percent the kidneys are functioning based on a, a blood test that called a creatinine yes. that can then be used to figure out that percentage. Yes. So help me understand living-related donor and deceased donor. 
I wouldn't say living-related donor versus deceased donor. I would say living donor versus deceased donor. Why is that? Living donors are people who come forward to offer to be a kidney donor to somebody who needs a kidney transplant. An altruistic donor. Right. Out of, you know, just to do something good for someone, um, sometimes that they know, sometimes that they don't. When kidney transplant first started, a lot of these donors were related to their recipients. So brothers or parents or sisters, children giving to their parents, that was sort of mostly where the donor pool came from. As time has gone on, more and more living donors are not related to their recipients. Husbands to wives, friends from church, people they knew from high school, donors, living donors can really come from anywhere. So I would I would say they do not necessarily have to be related by blood to their recipient. Um, they just have to be willing and they have to be healthy enough to go through the donation process. And as you would imagine, the evaluation of someone to be a living kidney donor is very rigorous. These are people going through a surgery that they will not benefit from medically. I think it may be the only surgery that is performed that doesn't directly medically benefit the person having the surgery. It certainly benefits them psychologically by helping someone and and going through this process. But, you know, we want to make sure we are minimizing the risk to this potential living donor as much as possible. So they go go through a very rigorous evaluation process. Yeah, it's interesting, Karen, that you said um, that the donors often don't benefit, and uh, medically that's absolutely true. It's it's all risk and, and no uh, benefit. But the interesting thing, I saw a, a woman in clinic not too long ago who um, was looking to donate to her husband, and we were talking about some of the risks of the surgery. I just wanted to make sure she was aware of all these risks and let her know that that for her, it's um, you know, it can be risk without without benefit. And she was very quick to correct me. She said, uh, "Listen, my whole life, my whole job, the last year has been taking care of this guy, meaning her husband, and that all of her time and efforts were really spent dealing with his health issues. And she felt that with a transplant, not only was he going to get his life back, but she, in some ways, was going to get her life back as well and have her, her partner back." It's really one of the most wonderful gifts you can give anybody to, to give a kid. It is amazing. Yeah. To sort of finish up that question, then you asked what's the difference between a living donor and a deceased donor. So a deceased donor is someone, a patient who has experienced either brain death or significant illness they are not expected to recover from and have consented to be an organ donor. And and there, that's where, for patients that don't have living donors, that's where the rest of the kidney transplants that are done come from, the deceased donor pool. So let's walk through the typical organ offer process. So typically we'll be um, going about our our business and we'll get a page and it's from the organ procurement agency in uh, here in North Carolina, Carolina Donor Services, and they'll call us and tell us they have a, that there's a donor that's available and that uh, our patient is first up on the list, whoever that patient may be, is, is first up in line for this kidney. Oftentimes they've waited four, five, six years possibly, and anywhere from typically is about three to five years here in, in our region. 
on the deceased donor wait list. They'll have been waiting that long to get this phone call. And so first we'll get the call from the organ procurement organization and they'll describe the donor, give us some background about um, their medical history, how they're doing now, how their kidney function is, how their other organ functions are. And at that point, typically we'll draw, uh, we'll do a little bit more uh, research into the donor, make sure there's no infectious history because we don't want to transmit anything from, from donor to recipient. Uh, so we make sure there's no infections, there's no cancers, they have good medical health, we check all their other labs, and when all of that checks out, we then will call one of our coordinators, one of our nurse coordinators will call the patient and let them know that there's a, a potential kidney available, and uh, at that point, usually they're told to pack an overnight bag and get into the hospital as quickly as they can. An exciting moment. How do you know that somebody is brain dead? Uh, how is someone who has decided to become a donor at the time of their death, uh, how can they be sure that their organs won't be taken uh, before the time has really come? How do you, as a group of physicians, decide that issue? That's, that's a great question, and actually we get, a lot, we get that question quite often, not just from patients, but um, I'll get it just in my uh, daily life, people asking how they want to part they they think donations a, a fabulous thing but they they're concerned that somehow being a donor might alter the way they're taken care of uh, at the end of life the two processes are are very separate there's a team uh, that's taking care of a patient and when that patient is finally when all their medical care is exhausted and and um, they're declared brain dead only at that point would the uh, organ procurement organizations be contacted and and the patient be evaluated for, for being a donor. And typically, to be declared brain dead, there's several different kind of tests they can use. Uh, one is a breathing test. They'll take the patient off the ventilator and make sure they're not breathing at all spontaneously. Um, they can look at their uh, cerebral or their uh, brain perfusion um, and several other tests that uh, can indicate with clarity that there's no brain activity and that the patient is indeed uh, brain dead before the organ offers or that process even gets started. So it's really two separable teams, the team taking care of the patient who then uh, has to participate in the process of declaring a person brain dead and then a very different group who then uh, takes over and is uh, there to make sure that uh, organs that are harvested are well cared for. So there's no there's no conflict of, oh, I want to speed this process up. No, exactly. And that's, um, I think we take great care to, to sort of separate those two activities. Another team would take care of the patient to their fullest capacity. And only when they reach the point of being brain dead, would they approach the family, change gears and, and inquire to see if they would be interested in, uh, in donation. And oftentimes, the uh, patients themselves have made that decision for their family uh, on their driver's license or in some other capacity. There is this concern that there are kidneys and other organs that are available that are not being used. So the person has gone through the whole process that you've just described. They've signed up on their driver's license to be an organ donor. Uh, the family um, uh, has provided consent again that the person who is now brain dead should donate and could donate. And then sometimes those organs are not used. How does that happen? It does happen occasionally, and part of that is just 
the uh, vetting of the organ or just uh, looking into the quality of the organ. And once in, once in a great while, we'll have a, a donor where due to their other medical disease or they may even have had kidney disease, uh, we won't discover that until until after the time of, of their death. We'll look at either a biopsy or some of their other uh, renal function parameters. They could be declared not a good candidate for donation in the sense that that kidney wouldn't give the recipient the longevity they were looking for. Other options, other reasons that sometimes organs are turned down would be for infectious causes or um, if a malignancy was discovered at the time of the organ recovery. Any of those cases, uh, we try to be very uh, cautious in the type of organ we put in, especially when we think of it from the perspective of this patient who's going to be getting a, a transplant is going to be immunosuppressed and very susceptible to infections and, uh, and other such things. So we'll, we'll be very cautious if uh, there's any indication that the organ that we would be bringing in would, would have any uh, complications. So because you want to make sure that the person has the best chance of having that kidney work for a long time. So walk me through the idea now that the recipient has been called, they're coming in to the emergency room with their bag hoping to get a kidney. They've been waiting on the wait list for years and years. They're in the emergency room. The hope, of course, for that person is that they're about to get a kidney. What can happen? So when they come in, they're evaluated by both the medical and the surgical team. Again, sort of redoing, in a shorter version, the the evaluation of them as an immediate candidate for transplant. So medically, things that we look at are, have they had recent infection? Have they been in the hospital recently? How is their cardiovascular health? You know, do they have active chest pain? Do they have a fever? Things that would prevent them from going to the operating room from a medical perspective, something that would put them at high risk for complications around the setting of anesthesia with surgery, as well as the setting of the profound amount of suppression of their immune system that we do at the time of the kidney transplant. So we look at all those things. We get lab work to look for any abnormalities that would be unexpected in their labs. We do chest x-rays, look for any infection in the chest, things like that, prior to to saying, yes, we're okay medically with them going to surgery. You know, do they need dialysis before they go to surgery? We look at all those things sort of as this is going on. The other thing that we do is we do what's called a cross-match. So we test the recipient's blood to see if they have any antibodies that would cause rejection of that that donor kidney. We have all that information in the database, but those things can change over time. So there's still the possibility that at the last minute, if the kidney is not a good match for that recipient, that that would be another reason potentially why they could not get that kidney. The hope, of course, is that everything is going to go well. They get rolled to the OR for this exciting moment of, of finally getting a new kidney, a second chance, how long do these operations typically take? I always tell the patient our surgery is going to take three hours or so, but between getting the uh, patient back to the operating room, getting uh, uh, central venous monitoring, special monitoring set up for the surgery and and post-op, and uh, at the back end, getting the patient sort of bundled back up and and to the uh, recovery room, it's probably, uh, I always 
tell the patient's family is expected to be about four or five hours altogether. Pretty fast. Yeah. And then once the person's come out of the operating room and the kidney's working well, what's what should they expect? So they'll go to a bed in the hospital. Obviously, they stay in the hospital after this surgery. And initially, they're they're in a what we call a step-down bed, which is a it's not an intensive care unit unless there were complications in the surgery, but it's an area where they're watched a little bit more closely and we'll look at, they do ultrasounds after the surgery, make sure there's good blood flow to the kidney. Um, we monitor, obviously, their how much urine they're making very closely. We monitor their blood pressure. But patients generally are able by the next day to at least get up and sit in the chair, even stand and walk a little bit. It's a pretty physically a pretty quick recovery for most patients. Um, so it, they're usually pretty surprised at at how much they can do initially after a kidney transplant surgery. And I would say, Alex, correct me if I'm wrong, most people stay in the hospital about four or five days. Yeah, sometimes even less, depends on a lot of different factors. But yeah, some of our patients are out as soon as um, three days after surgery, and other patients will stay a few extra days if they've got some medical issues we're just trying to get a hold of before they They go go home. Yeah. Now, if this were a person who was getting a living donor... The living donor would be in an operating room right next door to the, the recipient, the patient. Uh, the organ goes from one room to the next. Walk me through what happens to the donor, the living donor, with respect to their recovery. Is it as fast as what you've just described? Basically, yeah, they'll recover as quickly. However, the the first couple days, the first two or three days, we I'll always tell the donors that... Uh, not to be too discouraged because the recipient is um, going to be dancing around. Exactly, they'll be they'll be very uh, they'll be very excited. They'll be sort of coming from a different perspective. The donors are coming from absolutely you know perfectly healthy, and then they they you know feel like they just kind of got hit by a truck. Whereas the recipients immediately feel feel better, and uh, they usually tolerate their surgery really well, and they're they're running over to the donor's room to, to thank them, and then the donors takes them maybe an extra day, but eventually they'll they'll be up uh, up in the halls walking with, with their recipient. Because a kidney transplant, remember, goes in the pelvis, so it, it's not a, they don't actually have to operate in the abdomen for a, to place a kidney, but to get a kidney out, they do go into the abdomen, and that always takes a little bit more time to recover from just until your guts start to work again. So that's mm-hmm. kind of the issue generally that the donors run into. And the living donor who now most graciously provided a kidney, when should they expect that they're going to be back to their normal lifestyle? They're usually back to their normal lifestyle between two and four weeks, with the caveat being that we don't want them doing any strenuous activity to stress their incisions until a minimum of uh, six weeks. So once they get to about two to four weeks, though, we usually are, are soliciting help from, from members of their family to make sure they, we kind of hold them down. And <laughs> they're feeling good. They want to be active. They want to be doing stuff. But we tell them nothing, don't lift anything heavier than a jug of milk until that six-week mark because we want everything to heal right the first time. How do you counsel a patient on conversations about living donors? Patients are pretty leery of asking for help. That is, it's very true. It's an 
awkward conversation to have with someone, a lot of patients are very hesitant to do so. What I have found to be helpful is to, particularly if there's friends or family in the room when I'm seeing a potential recipient, is I engage those people to speak on behalf of their loved one. I tell them, you know, it's sometimes hard for patients, they don't want to tell everyone that they're sick. Maybe people don't even know they have kidney disease because some, you know, that's not, it doesn't show when you have kidney disease a lot of times. So they may not know, particularly if a patient isn't on dialysis yet. So we talk about ways to let people know in their community, whether it be people at church or their close friends. And a lot of times, Um, their friends and family can kind of start the conversation with other friends and family about what's going on with the patient and sort of bringing up, you know, we went to a kidney education class and they talked about living donation and what a benefit it is to have a living donor. And, you know, we're just trying to talk with everyone about finding a living donor for, for our family member or loved one. And, and, Generally, if, if the family and friends that are present can't be donors themselves, they, they will go out and, and advocate for their, their patient if the patient feels like they can't do it themselves. We also have a program where people going through the process of being listed for transplant can get a transplant mentor. So a patient who's already had a transplant um, can talk to patients because it's easy for us to talk about all these things, but I we have not walked in these patients' shoes. And sometimes it's really helpful for them to talk to someone who's gone through the whole process and come out on the other side. And sometimes they can have a lot of helpful hints for things like this about getting out and, and figuring out how to approach people about donation. So now the person has gone through an entire workup, the recipient, they're on dialysis, they finally get on the waiting list. And you said they can wait three, four, five, six years. Uh, you see them intermittently. How do you keep somebody motivated to stay on the list, stay healthy, on dialysis, realizing that that's a long period of time to wait? What do you tell them? Actually, I have not had a hard time keeping people motivated for the most part because they see transplant as sort of the light at the end of the tunnel, even though the tunnel is very long. It, it gets difficult when people have had a lot of medical complications. They maybe have been sick for a while or been in the hospital, and they get discouraged about about transplant and, am I even going to get there? Am I ever going to get this kidney? And I think that's a, a good time when the transplant mentor program comes into play. If they can talk to somebody who went through the process and waited a long time and now has a successful transplant, sometimes that can help keep them motivated. I know that I encourage patients, particularly my patients who were on dialysis for a long time before they got transplanted, I encourage them actually to go back to their dialysis units, visit with the staff, visit with the patients, show them how well they're doing. That really helps, I feel like, helps keep me, people motivated more than anything that I can say, probably. 
to just show them, keep in their mind kind of what they're working for. But yes, it is a long time. And then that's always a good time when they're coming back to see us as they're waiting is to readdress living donors. You know, maybe somebody didn't have a living donor at the time that they were listed, but that doesn't mean someone may have come into their life in those years in the in the meantime that might consider being a donor for them. And sometimes patients sort of are like, their head's down, they're on the waiting list, they're waiting for that deceased donor, and they don't think, hey, wait a minute, maybe this somebody, there's somebody now that would be considered as a donor. So I try to bring that up at every visit because that's, you know, another way, obviously, to decrease the waiting time. It's interesting that Selena Gomez just on national TV was shown with her recipient side by side with her donor, her living donor. That's pretty cool. It's, I mean, amazing. You know, I knew that she had lupus. She's been very open about her battle with lupus over the years. And it turns out her living donor was another actress that was a very good friend of hers. And they have as far as anyone can tell, both done amazingly well. She actually tweeted a picture of her renal transplant scar. So if anyone's curious as to what that looks like, they can look up Selena Gomez on Twitter and look at the picture. But it looks like she's doing well, and it's just another – I mean, she's, I think, 25 years old. You know, this is – it's certainly awful that she has renal failure, but of all the – courses of treatment for her, she has the ideal one, which is a a kidney transplant, I presume, prior to needing dialysis. I don't think that she was on dialysis prior to her transplant. And that's the beauty of living donation sometimes is that the patients don't even miss a beat. They... They get sick a little. They have, you know, they realize, they recognize they have uh, renal disease. But before they really get uh, sick and uh, are um, on dialysis and in the dialysis center for several hours, three times a week, before any of that ever happens, you know, they have someone who's um, some noble, generous person in their life who's who steps forward and they're able to um, get a second chance before they even uh, truly had to suffer too deeply with kidney failure. So, Alex, what do you like best about what you do? Without a doubt, I'd say it's getting to interact with these families who are going through um, a difficult time and being able to help them with the team. We, as we, we said, we have a huge team. So there's there's something special about doing something in such a collaborative fashion with uh, Karen and the nephrology team and all our coordinators and um you know, the anesthesiologists, the uh, other surgeons. Um, there's so many people that are helping these patients get from A to B. When we finally get to do the transplant, I'd say one of the highlights is just watching the reperfusion of the kidney in the operating room. When uh, we, we take the clamps off, the kidney goes, usually it's white. We've flushed all the blood out of it before it goes in. And then as soon as we sew it in, and we the sort of moment of truth is when we take the clamps off and the recipient's blood rushes into the kidney and it pinks up. Hopefully at that point, it starts making some urine within the next couple of minutes. So that's wonderful. once it does that, that's uh, it's a pretty exciting moment. But to be able to help uh, be a part of the, the team that gets that patient from A to B is always pretty exciting. Karen, what about you? What do you like best about what you do? I mean, definitely the patients. These are patients who have received this amazing gift, and it has absolutely taken them from 
a really bad place to a really good place. It's life-changing, and to kind of be a part of that is pretty amazing. And for me, you know, once these patients recover from surgery, they come and see me for the life of their kidney. And as you've heard, that's a lot of years. So as I get older, I have these patients that I've taken care of for 10 or 15 years now. And they're, I mean, I show them pictures of my kids. They're a part of my family. It's a really beautiful relationship to have. And I'm so lucky to have that. And again, I would echo what Alex said. We have a great team and it's fun to come to work. We um, are doing a wonderful thing, and we have a good time doing it. So it's it's pretty amazing job. So thank you, Dr. Toledo and Dr. True. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks to our listeners for tuning in. If you enjoy this series, you can subscribe to The Chair's Corner on iTunes or like us on Facebook.